All right, grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Uh, we're going to engage in an exercise this morning that I'll call Find Yourself in the Story. Find Yourself in the Story. Now, those of you who listen carefully know that I've actually critiqued that particular approach to reading Scripture before from this pulpit. In fact, uh, because of the sort of me-centered, Christ-marginalizing kind of theological ethos that exists in our time, I'm often wary of those sorts of things like find yourself in the story. Uh, we'd much rather say, where, where's Christ in the story? Where's God's glory in the story? Where's the thing that all of redemptive history is actually about in the story? And newsflash, that's not you, right? That's not me. And so... Uh, while I am generally wary of this sort of emphasis of find yourself in the narrative, it is also true that we are intended to find our lives, our situations, insight into our circumstances and marching orders for ourselves in the sacred texts. Isn't that true? Well, of course it's true. In fact, Paul highlights this practical or applicational use of Scripture himself in 1 Corinthians 10, 11 when he says this, now, these things happened to them, Old Testament saints, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. That is to say, see something of their story, of their life, of the events that unfolded in their personal history. See something of that in what's going on with you now and learn from it. All right, so the Apostle Paul has commissioned us to do what we will do this morning. So we'll work to understand the characters and so on some level or another, to identify with them and to learn from the examples that are put forth by them. Now, in this prologue, I want to be honest with you. I want to let you know that this week's sermon text has put the fear of God in me, quite literally, as the Spirit has allowed me to see a danger that faces our church, churches like ours and ours specifically. And that's the danger of becoming modern-day Pharisees, who start out very well, seeking to respond to the licentiousness of our day with a sober-minded return to God's word, to faithfulness, to seriousness, but ending with something that's actually not quite what we intended. As you know, particularly if you've read Vodi Bauckham at all, there are new fault lines that are dividing the Christian church, God's people at present, whether it's critical race theory, how to respond to the sexual insanity of our time, masculinity and femininity, and how those things should manifest themselves in a Christian household, as well as, interestingly enough, a fresh emergence of the worship wars that's exactly the opposite of the worship wars that were going on 30 years ago. See, it used to be that when people used the term worship wars to describe what was happening in the modern evangelical church, they meant that the congregation wanted to sing the hymns, but the young, trendy pastor thought that he could increase attendance if he would incorporate modern worship songs. But interestingly, there's another iteration of the worship wars that has begun of late, uh, where now it's actually the young pastor who's saying, uh, I want to ditch all those modern songs. I watched some YouTube videos. I, I found out what's really going on at Bethel. I found out what's really going on at Hillsong. I found out what's really going on at Elevation. I'm never singing those songs again. Get out your hymnals. Okay. Those are the new worship wars because now everybody's been conditioned. They're like, but I really like those. They make me feel really great. I like singing that 14 times and you preaching for five minutes. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good arrangement for me. I, I like it that way. Right. 
And so now there's another iteration of the worship wars that is in full swing in our day and time. Now, I, I bring that up just to say that the church is divided on many doctrinal and cultural issues. And the cultural issues are, of course, doctrinal issues as well. We just call them cultural issues when they're issues that pagans also care about. Right? That's the point at which we're like, well, that's a cultural issue there. And none of this is new. It's not new to the American church, and it's not new to the global church. You see, the Gospels themselves are full of passages that tell us about the doctrinal and cultural issues of the biblical writer's day. From questions about divorce and remarriage that are asked to Jesus to questions about paying taxes to Caesar that are asked to Jesus. These are their doctrinal and cultural questions. The people of God always have debates that arise because of where they're situated circumstantially and historically. We read and we study God's word and then we publish our answers to our doctrinal and cultural questions in our conversations, in our sermons, in our books, and in our blogs. Upon publishing, some people agree with us and some disagree. Some make good arguments and some make bad arguments. But for better or worse, our debates continue as we seek to apply God's ancient world in our, or excuse me, God's ancient word in our present world. And as with any publicly, excuse me, as with any publicly debated issue, there are conservatives and there are liberals. And there are the indifferent people in between who are just like, I don't understand why you guys are debating. I'm just trying to live my life. Please leave me alone. Right? Now, given the debates of our day, I trust that you know where our church falls on that spectrum of conservative, liberal, and indifferent. Obviously, we're liberals. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. Obviously, we are conservatives. And we're conservatives because Christ commands that we be conservatives. We're salt and light. What is the salt doing? It's conserving or preserving something. That's because what sinners want to call progress, the Bible actually identifies as rotting. Okay, there is progress of a kind. There is a process taking place, but it's actually rotting. And so somebody should conserve or preserve what God had originally made. We're conservatives because the Bible commands it. We're happy to be conservatives. We're right to be conservatives. But every group has its pitfalls. And sin doesn't only crouch outside the doors of liberals, believe it or not. It's crouching outside of our door as well. And I believe that today's text speaks to one of the sins that is crouching at the door of the conservative church. Or more pointedly, if we're not careful, our church. So let me read for you from Matthew chapter 3 beginning in verse 7. But when he, that's John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now this is a little-known fact, but this passage was actually the primary inspiration for the seeker-sensitive movement. You guys know that? The attractional growth church movement? 
They noticed how warm and inviting John was to the visitors, and they said, you know what, we should probably have a methodology for ministry that's as warm and welcoming as John the Baptist was. Of, of course, they didn't read that passage, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. All right, we've got a little bit of work to do in this passage, because here we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and we have John erupting at them, but... They just burst onto the scene in, in Matthew's gospel, and we don't actually have an explanation of who they are, what's going on, why is he so angry at them. Apparently, we're supposed to know why they were rebuked instead of welcomed, who they are, what they've been into, etc., etc. So let's start by getting a more full picture of who generally was coming to John's baptism. We need to know who's present in this scene, because as I said, we're going to try to find ourselves in this narrative. Matthew tells us, I believe this is in verse 4 of chapter 3, yeah, verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were, be, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So Matthew's going to tell us that a lot of people were coming out. He says, Jerusalem, then all Judea, and all the region, right? So what we do know from what Matthew tells us is that uh, John has a large ministry with many coming to hear him preach and to receive his baptism. But he doesn't tell us specifically who are those people, what kind of people are they, what class of people are they, who, who specifically is coming out to John's Baptism, But Luke actually gives us a little bit more detail in his account. You don't have to turn here, but in Luke chapter 3, we learn that tax collectors and soldiers were coming to John's baptism. Tax collectors and soldiers. Now, that's the class of people that was flocking to John. And those folks, interestingly enough, fall into a well-identified category in the Gospels that they term, quote, sinners. Sinners. You've read that expression throughout the Gospels, haven't you? Uh, tax collectors and whom? Sinners, right? Jesus ate with sinners. You've read this all over your Gospels. You've seen that expression. Now, this term, sinners, was actually used technically by the Gospel writers, not generally. Of course, generally speaking, we're all sinners, right? That, that's true generally, but they were using the term more narrowly than that, more technically than that. And what they were doing is they were actually referencing the standard Israelite at that time, who, interestingly enough, is much like the average American in our time. The sinners, quote unquote, were Jewish-born identifiers with the Old Covenant. They were circumcised, and the Torah and the Tanakh was loosely attached to their lives and basically made up their moral framework. But for all intents and purposes, they were nominal in their association with Judaism, with the Old Covenant, with their religion. They didn't attend synagogue to grow and learn more deeply. And they really, their religious observance was only limited to the major feasts in Israel that it was just socially unacceptable not to observe, and so they were kind of backed into a corner, right? But the sinners are basically disinterested in religion, except to the degree that it identifies or orients them culturally. Sort of like how you can ask most random people in the American South if they're Christians, and what are they going to tell you? Well, of course. I'm a Southerner. To be a Southerner is to be a Christian, right? This is just the air that we breathe. But then you ask them, hey, what church do you go to? They say, well, I go with Grandma on Christmas Eve. <laughs> Those are the sinners. Then you've got the Pharisees. 
and the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees made up the Israelite aristocracy. It was primarily... Oh, hey, Hudson. <laughs> if Luke has to come up and pinch hit for me, it's because somebody needs a spanking. So we'll be assessing that in real time as necessary. <laughs> All right, so the Sadducees, this is the aristocracy. They're the elites. The Sadducees were the ones who sat primarily on the Sanhedrin, which was Israel's supreme court. The Sadducees were the political class, and they were primarily concerned with maintaining a good relationship with Rome. They wanted to keep Rome happy because that kept their coffers full and kept them from, you know, things like war and the loss of their nice homes and all those sorts of things. So again, they're the elites, the political class. They're the kind who tell you that you have to shut your business down and wear a mask, and then the next day they go to get their hair done. That's the Sadducees, okay? <laughs> then you've got the Pharisees. The Pharisees were an interesting group that I don't think is very well understood by modern Christians. Because we live in a licentious and libertine time, we love to hate the Pharisees. Because we think that somehow the gospel's negative characterization of the Pharisees is an endorsement of our lack of standards. <laughs> that, that's why modern people absolutely love the fact that the Pharisees are hated in the New Testament because modern people are like, well, I'm nothing like that. <laughs> I'm definitely not at all like a Pharisee. We love to take note of how harshly treated these high-minded Pharisees were with their law-keeping and their theological debating and their judging. The modern church loves the Pharisees' bad reputation because we could never be accused of any such things, right? Keeping God's law? No, 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 no. We'd never require that. Debating theology? Of course not. We keep the main thing the main thing, and we don't get caught up in divisive discussions about doctrine, right? Just bring a covered dish and we'll be fine. Judging others? Never. We only pass judgment on judgmental people, right? We're definitely not Pharisees. We don't teach God's law, we don't care about theology, and we only judge people that seem like they're the Pharisees, and we think that's okay because Jesus did it, right? Modern Christianity. We've got a shallow understanding of the Pharisees because it behooves us to have a shallow understanding of them, since that shallow understanding functions as a tacit justification of our antinomian, soft, self-help sermons. But in a lot of ways, the Pharisees were the good guys who were corrupted over time. They were actually pretty noble as a group. Now hear me out, because I know that you probably haven't heard somebody say that before. So the sinners don't care about God's law. They don't care about pleasing him. They're religiously indifferent. Then you got the Sadducees, the Sadducees who exploited religion only identifying with it and employing it for political purposes. Again, they're the elites who were largely segregated from the regular working class Jews. They embraced their religion tactically, not spiritually. But, but the Pharisees were different. The Pharisees were different. The Pharisees were the ones who were on mission to the regular working class Jews to teach them God's law, and more than that, to help them apply it. They were the ones who actually worked toward the observance of God's law among the people. They were the ones who were doing evangelism and discipleship. And Jesus himself tells us that, doesn't he? 
Doesn't Jesus say to them, you cross land and sea to make one convert? Doesn't he say that? They're the ones who are engaged. They're the evangelists. He also says in Matthew chapter 23, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. So they're the ones who are really engaged with people, and their teaching is basically correct. That's what Jesus just said in Matthew chapter 23. How many pastors have you heard talk about the Pharisees this way? I'm just quoting Jesus. I'm just quoting Jesus. So the Pharisees are the religiously engaged in Israel. They're the ones who at least had a concern for faithfulness. They care about righteousness and religion and purity. Again, the sinners were indifferent. The Sadducees were disconnected elites. But the Pharisees, as a group, were the best that Israel had to offer. They're the best Israel had to offer. Now, obviously, you could see if the Pharisees are the best that Israel had to offer, that's why John is saying the axe is laid at the root of the tree. That's the best you've got. <laughs> so, that being what it is, they're still the best that Israel had to offer. They're the conservatives who are fighting for God's word to be given voice and expression among the people to whom that word had been given. So that... That's who's at John's baptism. You've got the sinners, you've got the Sadducees, you've got the Pharisees. That's who's present at John's baptism here in Matthew chapter 3. Now, having surveyed the crowd at this baptism, we're ready to find ourselves in the scene. But, of course, I already gave it away in the prologue. I believe we're the Pharisees. I believe we're the Pharisees. If you go to church in a barn with pastors who say sodomite, you're a Pharisee. <laughs> There's... There's no doubt about it. You're probably not in the religiously disinterested nominal crowd if you're a part of this church. Fair enough? Fair enough? Right? You're probably serious about Scripture and you want to see it obeyed in your life personally, in your family, in our society more broadly. That's probably one of the reasons that you find anything at this church that is appealing to you because you want those things. Those are Pharisaical desires. Those desires are the things that, that birthed the Pharisees as a group. You're a Pharisee. I'm a Pharisee. That's who we're closest to in this section of the narrative. Unless, of course, you'd like to make the case that you're the greatest man ever born of woman, John the Baptist, you're closer to him, maybe. You could make that argument if you'd like. Or another character on the scene, maybe you'd like to make the case that you're most like the incarnate son of God. Those are the other characters from which you could choose in identifying yourself in the scene. Okay, we're the Pharisees. That's been established. That being the case, we need to know and understand why John is so antagonistic toward them because they are us. We need to know. Why is John publicly rebuking the Pharisees at his baptism? I mean, if, if we're just looking historically, if we're just surveying the landscape, if we're just looking at what's their movement and what were they doing, what's the Sadducees' movement and what are they doing, who are the sinners and what were they doing? If we're just looking at that and making an objective assessment, everybody's going to say, well, the Pharisees were better. I mean, they, they went to church, they read their Bibles, they taught the law, they cared about the law, and they wanted to help people actually obey it in their everyday lives. They're the best option 
on the table. So why in the world is John not allied with them, saying, yeah, let, let's push the kingdom forward together. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's join the Pharisees. What? Why did they not receive that welcome from John, and, and instead they receive a rebuke from him? What's wrong? And something is very wrong. I mean, best we can tell, John stops what he is doing to yell at them. It, it, was that, it was that important. He doesn't wait for the service to end. It's right in the middle, like when Hudson's running up the aisle. We've got to address it right then. <laughs> he stops what he's doing. So the picture's painted. John is receiving people for baptism. They're confessing their sins. He's probably doing some preaching in between these baptisms. Then he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming, and he, he stops the sermon. Somebody's confession of sin gets cut short because he's got business that he needs to handle because you just saw walked in the room. You see, he's just seen a snake slither into the garden, and he's not going to do what the first Adam did. He's going he's to address it. But again, it leaves us with the question, why are they snakes? Why is John so angry? Now, there is, I believe, an allusion to the serpent here and a particular attribution of the demonic that is intended in John's use of this phrase, brood of vipers, which Jesus is going to use of that same group later. That theme gets teased out more as John can, or excuse me, as Matthew continues. So we'll get there in due course. But I believe that the problem that John is addressing here is the fact that these men haven't come for repentance. These men haven't come for repentance. They've come to monitor everyone else's repentance. They didn't come for repentance. They came to monitor everyone else's repentance. They came to make sure that everything was up to their standards. They aren't there to witness, participate in, and celebrate what God is doing in Israel. They're there to critique it. They believed that they'd cornered the market on faithfulness. So if it wasn't coming from or led by them, it was suspect. The Pharisaical movement started out well enough, but over time, as is frequently the case with our movements, it was corrupted. Earlier, I mentioned Matthew 23 when Jesus says that the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat and that we should observe and do whatever they say. But I left out what Jesus says right after the comma. There's a comma. After that, here's what he says. But not the works that they do, for they preach but do not practice. The biggest problem with the Pharisees was not, contrary to popular belief, what they taught. What does Jesus identify as their primary problem? How they lived. Not what they taught, how they lived. It wasn't their formal doctrinal positions that Jesus was generally raking them over the coals for. It was their lives. The problem was how they lived and how they instructed others to live. The Pharisees became obsessed, as you know, with law and therefore with externals. They wanted to appear a certain way. They wanted certain societal results and reforms. They were after a certain look and feel, something more traditional. Traditional values need to be re-injected into the social order in a way that's observable to us. And the internal reforms that should accompany that external transformation were largely ignored by them. 
Again, the problem was not their doctrine. It was actually their discipleship, if I could delineate between the two. The way that they taught people to pursue holiness was actually extra-biblical, and they judged people on the basis of, what, of whether or not they upheld their standards, not necessarily God's. And this is an easy trap to fall into. See, the Pharisees had the same problem that most modern fundamentalist types have, and that's that in their zeal to uphold Scripture, they go beyond it and hold everyone else to the standards of behavior that they extrapolated from Scripture as if their extrapolations go on the same shelf as Scripture. This is the Southern Baptist who tells you that if you really want to be holy, you have to abstain from alcohol. Same idea. Mark chapters 6 and 7 provide a good example for us. The Pharisees have rebuked Jesus and his disciples because they don't wash their hands before they eat. Their concern was not about hygiene, of course. It was about ritual cleanliness. There's an old covenant law that required priests to wash their hands before entering the holy place and offering a sacrifice. Now, the law on hand washing was only applicable to priests who were performing that function, but in the oral tradition, the rabbis, as picked up by the Pharisees, sought to be more strict because they were worried that people were going to relax their standards of holiness and become... Well, like us, largely standard-less, law-less, decadent, and self-indulgent. So seeking to preempt licentiousness, they attempted to require the general population to abide by the law's higher standard of cleanliness, that being the one that was set for the priesthood before they entered the Holy of Holies, rather than the common standard. They, they viewed it as a slippery slope of a kind. And I can hear them making a compelling argument for this, if I'm honest with you. Shouldn't we live the whole of our lives as if we're in the presence of God? Right? This was a law for the priests before they entered the Holy of Holies. Right? Shouldn't we live our whole lives like we're in the presence of God? However he demands we be when in his presence is certainly how we should always be. He is omnipresent after all, theology 101. More clean, not less clean. So let's live according to the higher standards in God's law, not the lower ones. They had similar practices with regard to washing of cups and plates and all of those sorts of things that are also uh, modern applications at their time, modern applications of the priestly law. But originally, these were just discipleship techniques that were aimed at reminding people how to keep their lives clean before God. It, it was supposed to be a reminder that's the idea. As they cleansed their hands and their drinking vessels, it was supposed to remind them of the cleanliness of heart and life that God required. Innocent enough. Helpful enough. It was like the ancient equivalent of a WWJD bracelet. Right? You look down at that, it's like, oh, I should not say that the way I was going to. Right? You're, you're angry at lunch. Wash my hands. Okay, I probably need to purify my heart and not have that conversation with this person the way I was just getting ready to have it. Right? That, that's what they were after. That's what the Pharisees initially began doing with all of the things that we think of as their additions to God's law. They weren't classically, in their minds, additions. They were wise applications, inferences, discipleship techniques that were aimed at trying to help people have more consciousness of their living life in God's presence. 
They were teaching scripture and seeking to apply it devotionally to help people walk in greater holiness and awareness of God. That's what they were doing. The problem with those kinds of discipleship techniques, though, is that for the person, people, or group who's advocating them, they often harden into laws by which we then judge other people. That's what usually happens. And zeal is no excuse for adding to God's commands for his people. And doing more than God says is still a failure to do what God said. But that's initially where the Pharisees were started and how they went wrong. In the history of the movement, they were the ones who were concerned with seeing God's law transform their society. Somewhere along the way, they became more ardent about their traditions and discipleship techniques that grew up around God's word rather than God's word itself. I say all of that because I believe that the same sin is crouching at the door of the conservative church. We are the new Pharisees, and churches like ours will be in danger of the same error that the original Pharisees made. We are and have started out with the best of intentions. We've seen the slackness, the indifference, the nominalism, the licentiousness, the irreverence, the effeminacy, and the compromise that has plagued God's people in the Western church. And so what have we done? We've started churches and networks and affiliations which have turned into a movement to counteract that slackness, indifference, nominalism, licentiousness, irreverence, effeminacy, and compromise. We're punching back. That's the idea. We're fighting. Good. Right. The movement is necessary. And let's be honest, it was also inevitable because if you know history, it's its own seesaw, isn't it? We act, then we react. We emphasize, then we de-emphasize. We highlight this, then we highlight that. And the swing is in full force because we Pharisees are on the move. Now, in this new movement, which styles itself old, and of course, to Solomon's point, there is nothing new under the sun. In this new movement, we sing hymns and psalms, not modern dribble. We read word-for-word translations, not concept-to-concept or, God forbid, paraphrases. We have the Canon Plus app downloaded on our phone, not the Gospel Coalition app. And we say biblical patriarchy, not complementarianism. And if you followed me on each one of those things, you are definitely a Pharisee. If you understood everything I just said, yeah, absolutely, you are a Pharisee. It's 100%. (laughs) But here's the thing. Biblical patriarchy is a better term than complementarianism. The Canon Plus app is better than the Gospel Coalition app. Word-for-word translations are better than concept-to-concept translations. And your summary as an adult to your child is probably better than a paraphrase, but we'll talk about that later. And older songs are usually better than modern ones. My point is simply that those of us who know that all of those things are better are in grave danger. We're in danger of becoming corrupt Pharisees rather than faithful ones. You see, Pharisees like us are always in danger of becoming puffed up, of assuming that others are somehow incapable of or unwilling to see what we have seen, of coming to the erudite understanding to which we have come, of believing that there is, if we're honest, not just something about all of those things that I mentioned that's better, but maybe something about us 
that is a little bit better. This can also make us a bit like, if I could use this term, spiritual indie kids who simply dislike popular things because it makes us feel special and important to be a part of something that's small and rare and, and niche. You guys know those kids in high school where once a band got popular, all of a sudden they didn't like them anymore? <laughs> oh, they, they had to have sold out. That's how that happened. I'm probably just talking to Micah. With that hat, you were an indie kid. There's no doubt. <laughs> we assume that wide reception means that something is compromised, not that it's good. Right? Now, you could conceive of the Pharisees assessing John's very popular and very large ministry just that way, can't you? Look at all those people going to his ministry. Look at all those people going to listen to John preach and be baptized. There's some compromise in there somewhere. Right? Nobody likes us, that's why we know we're the faithful ones, right? So if we're honest, maybe we like being small and in a barn because it makes us feel holy. If we're honest, maybe we like it when people get mad about one of the sermons we preach and leave because it makes us feel faithful. But listen to me carefully. If anything other than the blood of Christ makes you feel holy or acceptable before God, then you are the corrupt version of a Pharisee. If anything that you do, if any work that you perform makes you feel like you are holy or acceptable before God because of the thing that you did or the way that you talk or the books that you read or the things that you won't watch make you more acceptable to God, repentance is in order because that is where the Pharisees faltered. No longer believing that your righteousness is filthy rags, even though you know that you're supposed to quote that verse. And yet, your quotation of the verse can so frequently become like, yes, I knew exactly when to quote that verse. I can even give you the chapter in the verse. So why does John respond so violently when the Pharisees show up? It's because they didn't show up to repent. They didn't show up to repent. They didn't show up to ask the Lord to drown their sins in the baptismal waters because they thought they'd been doing a pretty bang-up job of that on their own. Listen to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. This will be familiar to you. He, that being the Lord Jesus, also told this parable to some, listen to this, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. God forbid that we become those who trust in ourselves for righteousness, thinking that because of the books that we keep on our shelves and the robustness to be found in our YouTube viewing history, that we are the spiritual upperclassmen. And others, though they name the name of Christ, are treated with smugness and contempt rather than the honor that befits a brother. You see, trusting in yourself for righteousness will always lead to treating others with contempt. If you treat others with contempt, you're probably trusting in yourself for righteousness. You see, we Pharisees know how to talk. We never say it that candidly. You have to look. Do I view others as contemptible? It's probably an issue if you do. Next, he tells 
the parable about these men who trust in themselves for righteousness. Here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, honestly, at this point, I don't hate this prayer. At this point, I think that this is a very good prayer. If he's sincerely thanking God that he isn't like those other men, then he's acknowledging that the fact that he isn't is sheer grace from God. You see? And I thank God all the time that I'm not like other men. I'm a pastor. You know, we're dropping like flies. You know? Fallen pastors committing adultery with parishioners, being shady with the church's finances, being caught in all sorts of inappropriate exchanges with people, and publicly falling short of the standard to be above reproach. Every day, there's another headline. I absolutely thank God that I'm not like those other pastors, because I know that a thousand times a day, I'm a breath away from being just like them, but by the grace of God. You see? If that's what this guy means, then this is a rock-solid prayer. But that's not what he means. That's not what he means. Jesus already told us that this guy trusts in himself for righteousness. He believes that his moral success is attributable to him. He's thanking God for making him so much better than those other guys. Right? He's not thanking God for sheltering him in a way that those other men were not sheltered. That comes out in the next part of the prayer, where the guy who prayed that says this, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Here's why those things are impressive. The Old Testament law required that you fast once a year. This guy's like, how about twice a week? The Old Testament law required tithes to be given from agricultural Revenue, not from every income stream that you have. And this guy says, I give from absolutely every source of revenue that I get. He goes beyond the law's requirements, and he's proud of it. He's not humbly moved by God's grace in his life to fast more and to give more. He's pridefully motivated by a competitive spirit because we Pharisees create guilds denominations, presbyteries, and networks that can bestow honors upon us. That's what the pharisaical class does. That's part of why we love those things. We can see from Scripture that the experts in theology are more apt than others to form smug little societies for the advancement of mutual honor. In fact, Jesus says this in John chapter 44, speaking about the Jews' unbelief. He says this, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? That's what we do in our movements. They become occasions for receiving glory from each other. They quickly become about something other than reform. They become about social honors within the movement itself, within the guild. The Pharisees were looking to be honored by other Pharisees for their one-upsmanship in fasting and giving. And the ultra-conservative Christian movement that is on the rise 
will be looking to be honored by other ultra-conservative Christians for how fiery our rhetoric, our, our rhetoric is, how small our churches are, and how quiet our wives are. This is why John is so harsh with the Pharisees. This is why. Because they've done something, arguably, that's worse than what the sinners did. They simply ignored God's word. The Pharisees, in some ways, perverted it. In some ways, over time, added to it. But certainly, they learned how to manipulate it in order to exact glory for themselves. And I'll tell you this. It's the most studious among us who is most to be warned. A church like ours must hear what John says. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What's that word mean, repentance? It was in the sermon recap and discussion from last week. The word is metanoia, means to change one's mind. He's not telling them so much to correct their behavior. <laughs> I mean, what else does he want them to do? <laughs> How much more could they give? How much more strict in their observance of the law could they be? So what's John, John mean when he looks at the guys who are keeping the law most closely and he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance? What's he mean? I believe he means what our Lord means later in Matthew's gospel when he says to the Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup. The inside is disgusting. You say the right things. You read the right books. You've got the right systematic theology. Your family is rightly ordered, and you command respect in your home. And you think you're awesome. Woe to us if we ever arrive at such a place. May we never be among those who have an appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Let's pray.